Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation, we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So hello everybody and welcome to this edition of the UX Australia podcast. I am here today with Stephen Wakabayashi joining me from New York. Stephen, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Super excited and to have a chat with you. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Now it is evening in New York. Um, yes. How are things? What's, what's happening in New York at the moment? Um, and I, I'll put that in context. Um, so far this year, you've had a change of administration. You've had ups and downs of the pandemic that we're all experiencing. Where are things at at the moment? Yeah, um, good and the bad. The good thing is in terms of resources, vaccinations, we have them available for folks. But the bad part is there are many areas of New York and many states within the United States where people just don't want to get vaccinated. And so with that, we're right now seeing the new variant, unfortunately, ravaging through many neighborhoods that could have been extremely preventable. And so uh, right now we're just seeing an influx of many cases. And yeah, I think uh, a lot of people are struggling with, you know, COVID and just everything that has happened uh, for the past year, year and a half now. And uh, with that, I think some people made uh, not so great decisions. And so only time will tell to see where everything is going to be headed towards. But overall, myself personally, doing okay. All right. Uh, here in New York City, uh, the beautiful part is the city actually did a great job shutting down streets to uh, allow restaurants to leverage one side of the street uh, to open up outdoor eateries. And so you have a lot of restaurants, coffee shops, uh, all these different places have outdoor seating that they've never had before. It was, yeah. it was a, a really interesting response from a lot of major cities around the world, actually. Um, yeah. in, you know, like at the same time that they've shut down um, and, and really tried to cramp, uh, clamp down on mobility, a lot more people staying at home, um, a lot of cars off the road, um and then you see the cities sort of say well have the have the sidewalk take half the yeah. street um i know in in a, a number of european cities i think paris in particular um where they basically said look we're going to half the road and we're mm -hmm. going to allow outside eateries we're going to allow you to put tables where before we would never have let you do that um you know i can yeah. and i know in new york there's been some wonderful I don't want to call them pop-ups, but essentially the restaurants have extended out onto yep. the sidewalk, have yep. put up, in some cases, quite like substantial infrastructure uh, to allow that kind of dining. It must be great. 
Yeah, if some uh, during the winter time they went all out. Some people had little igloos. They had all the little cabins, and it was amazing to see the creativity. And uh, you were also seeing just a lot of um, folks eat and dine differently. And so, a big part of outdoor dining had an impact with pet owners. And so a lot of people were able to bring their dogs with them to restaurants. They if uh, frequented that they weren't able to. Uh, we also find a lot of parents have ease with strollers, right? Think about parents going into restaurants and having all these uh, different juggling <laughs> boosters and stuff like that. And they're able to just stroll up and park the stroller right in the eatery too. So overall, I think we're seeing a lot of shift and change the way people manage business, uh, especially outdoor dining, eatery, coffee shops for the better. Unfortunately, we see a lot of commercial real estate still struggling a little bit with offices, uh, but uh, you know, working in the city here, we see a lot of agencies adapting to uh, allowing different uh, ways of working. I believe Deloitte recently announced that they're going to allow people to work indefinitely from home if they wanted to. And we also see this shifting with a lot of agencies and a lot of companies here in New York. Uh, I know in, flexibility. I, I know in, um, in uh, Sydney and in Australia, um, in our um, major cities in those central business districts, we've seen um, a big shift away from those environments. So naturally, in some cases, like with, with us here in Sydney at the moment, uh, and Melbourne is the same, um, we have to stay at home and unless we like we, we're locked down. So I, I have to work from here and unless it is necessary for me to conduct my work in an office environment. Um, I, I, I know that that's had an impact on a lot of the buildings, uh, the businesses that you see in uh, and servicing the central business districts, those downtown areas. I don't think we've yet seen the shake-on effect of that in commercial real estate. Um, the layout and function of commercial office towers, like all of those sorts of things, I just feel like when companies like Deloitte with thousands and tens of thousands of employees located in major centres start saying, you don't need to come to the office, pretty quickly someone in finance and property management is going to say, we don't need the office, we, don't, we certainly don't need such a big office. Instead of needing six floors of an A-grade tower, maybe we could do with two or one, um, it's going to have a huge impact on on that part of the city environment. Absolutely. And I, I think even in terms of recruiting too, we're starting to see people almost flabbergasted that they could apply to any job anywhere. And a lot, I work a lot with folks, especially who are new to UX, diving into the industry and even just how they can apply and look for jobs. It's just so different, right? Yes. Whereas previously we would start with the location we're low, you know, and look at the different offices and the companies yep. in the region to see, Hey, who do I want to start going down yes. the list one by one? And now we can, we can apply very broadly. And so yeah. uh, I think even LinkedIn and all these different job search engines are trying to still catch up to figure out how they could even 
for example, modify some of the filters so yes. that people are able to search for companies who allow for this type of flexibility uh, or some who want more remote workers. And yes. yeah, I think overall, uh, I think personally, I think it, flexibility is good. Uh, yes. We allow people to work in the way that works best for them. Right. And you know, for some people, we're also thinking about, you know, what might the office solution look like that might be a remote office for people to use uh, whenever they need specific uh, space to do so. But for some people who just enjoy working at home or on their own. I, yeah. I, I think we're going to see and I, I think we're already seeing sort of two really interesting shifts. The, the first is that. I, I used to need to live in a place that would allow me to get the kind of work that I wanted um, or or else if I was really sort of keen on a location, then I would need to make do on the work. And those two things have now been reasonably fundamentally separated, at least for professional white-collar type work. Um, it's, a, it's obviously a little harder in other environments, but for people like you and I, I think, um, and for creative um uh, roles, but also lawyers, consultants, accountants, and a whole range of people, they're now in a position where they can say, actually, I'm going to live where I want, and I'm going to work for whom I want, and those two things no longer have to be so codependent. That's one thing that's really interesting. But the other one around that flexibility means that we can be hiring a much greater diversity of people because we're no longer stuck with, well, who lives here? So who's willing to live in the location where our clients are and where our studio is? Who's willing to put up with a daily commute? Who's able to do a daily, you know, like all of those sorts of things. And who can afford to live in the city, right? Who can afford to, yes, in, in the first place. So we can hire people um, not only anywhere in the country, but anywhere in the world realistically. I mean, with time zone issues, absolutely. But I think like that actually opens us up to much greater diversity, much more than we did before. Um, you know, I could be diverse within Sydney, but like that's limiting, right? Um, whereas now I can I, I can really open up our um, uh, our hiring practices to anyone. But for people Absolutely. who are looking for work, they can go, actually, it doesn't matter where I am, I can start to look at the companies that support me, the companies who will accept me, um, and I can go to them. I don't have to move to them. I can just apply to work there, which opens up a lot of opportunities. Absolutely, yeah. I do. I will. What I will say is, we're definitely missing the culture aspect, and maybe it's one of those things that we'll learn. Right? We'll learn how to uh, create a culture with remote working. I mean, there's companies who've done an extremely uh, amazing job at it. Uh, Envision, for example, is a company that's been completely 100% remote. Yet the way that they've structured meetings and the way they've structured onboarding have just been so in tune with that type of workforce. And companies are starting to realize, hey, we have to divert some attention, money, resources, so that we can start to create a culture through remote means as well. Um, yeah, and I, I think at the end of the day, uh, diversity, hiring for diversity, especially as it pertains to creative industries, right? The fields that you, are, you and I are in uh, is so essential to doing great work. 
And especially when our work touches on so many people, right? Around the world and different cultures and backgrounds, people using our products. It is imperative that we hire people from all different, not just uh, background, experience, education, but even location. Yeah. I touched on this in an essay I, I, um, I, I put out um, at the end of last year. Uh, sorry, at the end of 2019, sort of looking through um, the, the decade ahead, if you like. And one of the things that I was uh, sort of looking at was this idea that we're making good strides in engaging with uh, diverse audiences through our research and our co-design activities um, where we, you know, like get ideas and we test ideas with them, uh, the evaluation of those ideas and that kind of thing. But I think the, the real opportunity for the design over this coming decade, and I think it really will be facilitated by this shift away from centralised offices, is to actually have a much more diverse design team um, and the ability to engage with people as designers or as part of the design process, not as participants, but still on the outer, um, but from within the design process is going to be a really, really strong opportunity. I hope we see a lot Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot of talks. Um, so the nonprofit that I run, QT BIPOC Design, yes. provides free and accessible education for queer designers of color. Um, and we're doing a lot of work creating access to uh, digital design, UX design, research, product management, you name it, for uh, invisible communities. And a big part of our study in terms of how we can even have diversity starts with at the minimum, right? Like you mentioned, our methodologies, our processes. And what we've realized in the past few years has been this concept of design thinking, for example, has centered the designer at all facets of the processes, playing a godlike role, deciding, uh, extrapolating insights, creating the pillars and the North Star and the output and the deliverables and what we are experiencing on the outside, whether it's through the social media or all these different platforms that haven't worked really great for communities is the expression of certain folks' biases, uh, unconscious biases, the way they design. Uh, and I, Straight up I, I think, sometimes. Yes, exactly. And privilege, the ability, and the great example is, especially in terms of moderation, right, uh, on social media platforms and how such an afterthought, particularly because so many of the people who had built the platforms, uh, white men, successful, rich, wealthy white men, uh, didn't think content moderation was going to be important because they may not have had to experience it. And but so... Having not been on the receiving end... <laughs> yes, of, exactly. Of all, all forms of abuse throughout their entire existence um, <laughs> and that existence being questioned for their entire lives. Yes. No, I'm sure it wouldn't have occurred to one. Yeah, absolutely. And so and moving forward, we're even thinking about the concept of design uh, or, or reimagining the concept of design, asking us our, ourselves, do you have to be the official UX designer or the digital designer to be a part of this process? And there's a lot of amazing nonprofit organizations such as Project Inkplot, Creative Reaction Lab that are re-envisioning the way we bring people in, whether it's to 
actually create the insights that us designers we use, or we're creating partnership models of bringing people in, not just for usability testing, for example, but actually co-creating goals together, uh, sprints together with our users themselves. Yeah, it's it's a marked shift. It's long overdue. Um, I, I don't think design as a profession really understands the extent to which this will be transformative. Um, but I, I think that's true of all white society um, or, and certainly all sort of straight white society. I don't think um, they've fully reckoned with what that kind of shift where white men, and I, I sit here speaking as a, you know, like a white middle-aged man with every privilege pretty much at my disposal, um, I, I do understand. Um, I, I, I don't think... I don't think that notion of not being centred um, has occurred necessarily to them. Like they clearly feel um, aggrieved in many respects. You just need to turn on Fox News or Sky News in Australia to get that sense of, hang on a minute, like I'm, why am I not the centre of everybody's universe anymore? Like I'm, and even just that sort of minor shift in attention um, and that minor shift of centering is creating that kind of uh, tension um, and that strong reaction against it. But we're nowhere near seeing the extent that we need to. Um, and it will be a really, really important shift for us to work through both as an industry, but also as a society. Absolutely. And this also this concept of intersectional identities, right, where we are the intersection of all these different attributes of ourselves. And we're not necessarily either the marginalized or the oppressor. We can sometimes be a combination of them, right, where I one of my identities is being male. And in the structure of gender identities, it has a lot more privilege than many other identities. And so as we open up these discussions around uh, ableism, race, uh, sexual identities, uh, we were starting to recognize that it is really complex. And at the end of the day, the more we can create space for other people to show up authentically themselves, uh, provide their truths so that we can learn from it. We can co-create and collaborate to create better products and solutions together. I think that, that idea of simply being able to be yourself and, and bring yourself to your work and to your relationships um, and to your community as you are in all of its messy glory um, we, we, we will get better um, services, we will get better objects, we will get better relationships with each other as we start to break down those barriers to that kind of um, ability to be honest because of those structures that just incentivize us. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also this chase, right? This rat race chase that we have around the dollar, the monetary capital value of things. And uh, there's this huge argument where diversity 
is a resource problem, but we see trillion dollar companies still struggling with diversity within their workforce. And so if they are struggling with their workforce, it definitely is not a resource issue. And like you mentioned at, at the end of the day, when people can show up authentically as themselves and show up without having to embody somebody else, we see design being so much better, right? Um, And there's also this debate right now that's happening in the United States, I don't know if it's in Australia yet, around politics in the workplace. Should we talk about it? Should we not? (laughs) Basecamp and Coinbase and some of these other companies have set the precedence that there's no place in politics. But unfortunately for some people, this is their everyday lived experience politics and people don't get to decide to opt out as they're going to a grocery store or as they're walking through the day-to-day and along the lines of showing up authentically is to allow people to talk about what's happening in the world authentically as well i think the 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 idea so it's certainly a conversation that's happening in australia um i think it's it's focused more at the moment on should journalists be able to take a political stance on an issue outside of their journalistic work? So their private Twitter account, can they bitch about the government in their private Twitter account and then be objective in their journalism? It's, it's stuff like that. We've had public servants stood down from their roles because they've posted on their social media that they were um, unhappy about something. Um, I haven't yet seen... Um, this sort of internal debate where a company says, oh, let's keep the politics out of it. Um, and in, you know, like in, in some of the cases that you, you're talking about, these are the same companies that donate to political parties or lobby the government for, you know, like tax breaks yes. or, or, or whatever else. Um, so like that's just hypocrisy um, a- anyway. But also it's, as you say, like it's absolutely a position of privilege. It's a position of privilege to be able to say, I don't know, let's keep politics out of it because I can, but like not everybody can. Um, and for some people, it's, it's a life and death struggle, quite literally. Um, and that's particularly true in America, as we've seen, but we also have issues in Australia around things like um, racialized violence from our police force. Um, in Australia, like since March, we've had uh, nine Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people die whilst in police custody. Um, it shouldn't it shouldn't happen at all, but it's it's the the, the ninth uh, man passed away earlier this week, um, yeah. and it's you know like everyone is a tragedy, and yet we don't and refuse to deal with it. In America, obviously, racialized violence is um, a huge issue. We saw uh, protests last year. Those protests made their way around the world. We had them here in Australia. Uh, I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, obviously. Um, But there are a lot of those sorts of issues that we still got to grapple with to sort of sit there and go, look, once you walk through the door of the office, just leave the politics out of it is complete bullshit. Yeah. And what we're also starting to see are some companies, unfortunately, uh, who said that they were going to be a part of the movement and signed on all these, um, what is it when people sign, they say, I'm going to do something and join a website. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 
But basically, there was a report that came out this year that about 30% of ad agencies that said they were going to do something to uplift Black perspectives in the workforce actually withdraw their stance. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, this work is a lifelong process. And this isn't something that we can throw money at, uh, put a stamp of approval, and it's done. Yeah. Just fix it exactly because we're undoing centuries, right? Centuries and centuries of inequity, and of course, it's going to be tough. And look, the, the idea, even so, that there's a an end point um, to human society and our relationships to one another, um, like we're always going to be able to improve things, right? Um, clearly. So yes, um, as if even, perfection is within reach, immediate, right? <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 not going to happen. I I, I know some people have uh, ideals, um, but even so, like you know, it's it's always going to be a journey toward towards those things. I, I never think those things are actually going to be um, our destination. So Stephen, our our time is up, um, and I I'm thank you for a wonderful conversation. I I know. There's a lot more uh, that we could talk about. Um, we've touched on a couple of issues that could keep us going for days, um, which is lovely. I, I enjoy these conversations. We look forward to having you at UX Australia next month. Um, thank you for joining us your evening. Um, we really appreciate having you. Thank you so much. Looking forward to being a part of this, bringing our conversation into your space. And yeah, it's... it's um, Really grateful to have folks like you and helping to usher some of these conversations into our industry that we absolutely love. And the more we can talk about those, the more we can radically shift and create a beautiful, beautiful space within our UX industry for not just ourselves, but for everyone of all different identities. Absolutely agree. Thanks again. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) 